Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. These interviews were recorded from the 13th season of our live show at the Bryan Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Every show features an interview on an important issue, and then an improv comedy performance based on that interview. You're listening to just the interview from one of those shows. We'd also like to thank our media sponsor, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can check them out at www.minpost.com. This episode is all about education in Minnesota's two biggest cities, and we were fortunate to have both of their superintendents. Ed Graff is the new superintendent of Minneapolis Public Schools. Previously, he served as the superintendent of the Anchorage School District. He has served as an educator in various roles for 25 years. He has received the Exemplary Social and Emotional Leadership Award from the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Dr. Joe Gothard became superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools on July 1, 2017. He has previously served in similar roles in Burnsville and Madison, Wisconsin. He is a member of the National Superintendents Roundtable and a member of the Executive Committee of the Association of Metropolitan School Districts. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you both so much for being here. Is this the first time that you two have done a civic improv comedy show together? Yeah, it's the first time we've met, too. Hi. Uh, wow. First time as superintendent. Wow, this is very, very exciting. Um, I, I, I wanted to start with just sort of, a, and I've asked a lot of guests this question, but I think it's particularly interesting here, of just uh, you're both superintendents of these very large school districts. Why do you want to do this? Like, there's a lot of things you could do with your life that would be a lot, you would still have hair, uh, you know. Like, why, why superintendents? That just seems like uh, you wanted to see the permanent records. I get that, but other than that... What is it that sort of drew you to want these jobs? Yeah, you know, Tina, I think for me, it's, uh, I, I didn't have a great education. I did not have a great experience in school and uh, had a, a few teachers, coaches, mentors, community members um, really show me that when you believe in community, you believe in each other, um, that you can really give back and make some great things happen. I've always, been, uh, I've always been pulled into spaces where kids are giving up on themselves or Schools or school systems don't believe that they can achieve great things, and it's always motivated me. Where did you Where did you go to school that was so so rotten? Many wasn't hey, it wasn't rotten. It wasn't rotten. It was it was me. It oh, was good, because that would have been an awkward uh, start to the no, show. So, no, no, did not go to Minneapolis either. I'm in Madison. Okay. Madison. Ma- oh, that okay. So, um, <laughs> so what about you? How did so, you get into this? It's a little different for me. Both of my parents were educators, and it's kind of a long story, but I'll shorten it. Um, both educators, my father was an individual who fancied himself kind of a, uh, an outdoorsman as well, and so always looking for adventure. So growing up in my formative years, we moved to two different reservations on South Dakota, rural parts of Alaska, and the thing that resonated with me is that education for me was my life. That's what I knew. So all the celebrations, all the um, exciting things that happened over the course of the years happened around the school and um, as far as being a superintendent, yeah. I think you know what, what came to light is that I had the ability to really influence um, the outstanding experiences that kid ha- kids had at a, as a much larger um, 
position as a superintendent. See, and that's an interesting piece, too. Uh, again, we have a lot of folks on the show who ha are maybe people uh, folks have heard of, and they have an idea, oh, a superintendent. But uh, what what do you actually do? What is your, what is a job? Like, what do you, because you, you aren't, I, I assume, just like going in and like doing attendance of all of the teachers in the school <laughs> district. So uh, what is what does your day sort of look like? Well, three words that describe it are brevity, variety, and fragmentation. I thought you were going to say fragrance. And no, I, uh... no, not quite. So it, uh, no two days look the same. Yes, there are some you know, weekly standing meetings and things like that, but it is truly meeting the needs of, of our community as it relates to our schools, our students, our community members. Uh, we both work with boards of education who can, uh, who can be very demanding uh, of our time and set very clear expectations about the work yeah. they would like to see us do. Um, so we're constantly, or I'm constantly balancing uh, where to spend time. And three months in, I'm still learning that. So give us some, exa I, I, either of you, I'd love to hear some specifics of, you know, uh, you're balancing these different, like what are, what are things that actually make it to a superintendent's desk that you have to deal with? Everything makes it to our desk, one way or another. I mean, my day today started at 6 a.m. when I got a text from uh, someone I work with who said I'm out ill today. So I'll try and get, you know, the information for your schedule and calendar out to other people. Then I went to a phone call, and then I went to uh, an impromptu meeting with a staff member about an incident that bubbled up over the weekend, wanted to make sure we had support for the school. Then I was out at two different schools today, talking to the leaders in the school, finding out what their needs were, construction projects going on, um, implementation of materials. Met with a board director today. Um, you know, did a celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day, which is a, a great thing to be um, talking about. And now I'm here. You know? and so, I mean, that's, you know, as, as Dr. Gothard mentioned, it's, it changes every day. But I think for me, in all those conversations, it's going to come back to how does this affect our students? What is the impact that we're making on our students in a positive way? And in every conversation I have, if I can lead with that, if I can have that be the influence to the discussion, I think that um, that's what my job is. It's to be you know, I always say parents are the number one advocate for their children, and my job is to be the number two advocate. So every chance I get, I'm going to be talking is about... That, is that... Do you ever wish that maybe parents weren't such great advocates? <laughs> like, like, they were just a little more lackadaisical no, about the whole thing. You know, yeah, that's, their, that's their right. That's, their, that's what they need to be doing. And I think um, hopefully through more of those conversations and interactions, we can get to a, a place where, where they know that um, we have their child's best interest and... Um, certainly we want that. We, I want critical supporters, you know, people who are willing to say, you know, you could have done it this way, but I'm still going to support you as opposed... That second part is very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. As opposed to the professional cynics <laughs> who yeah. say, you're not doing it right, and I have no solutions to offer. Well, this is something that... And we've done some shows about education previously, and it's something that's fascinating to us because... Uh, Folks, everyone is an expert uh, because everyone has been at least in a school, uh, and therefore they know uh, how this should work. And so I, I've got to imagine, you know, that's that's you all to the nth degree. That sort of everyone's coming up to you and being like, "Let me tell you something about how desks should be arranged," or I don't know exactly what. You know, and you, I guess one of the not surprises, but one of the one thing that happens more often than not is people to come up and say how much they value and believe and appreciate what we do as well. I was sharing with someone today earlier that, you know, how are things going, which is the most common question I get uh, for a few more months anyway. Uh, then I won't be new. I got, I got welcome and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I said now to someone... it's just good luck. 
<laughs> I said to someone today, if, you, uh, if my job satisfaction is based on how much people care about our schools, about our community, then I, I have the best job in the world. I mean, people really care. And the opposite of that is apathy. Yeah. Apathy mm-hmm. gets us nowhere as a, as a community, as a school, uh, as a classroom. You have to care. And right now, um, I think it's, it's very important that we listen to those and, and act on those tough discussions. So, uh, so tough discussions. Let's talk about this. So uh, I, I guess, uh, I don't know, do you have to do a, a state of the schools address? Is that a thing? Uh, so the, can you give us the, the 32nd state of the schools in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul sort of each? Like, uh, where are we? What are the things that you, I'm sure that there's lots of things that are going great. But what are the things that folks are, are concerned about and, you know, fill up probably the majorities of your day? And I would say for us, it's uh, achievement. I mean, we have uh, Minnesota has some of the most disparate outcomes uh, in many measures, education being first and foremost. Uh, when you look at students of color. And, and white students and the gap between um, their success. It's something that's talked about a, a whole lot uh, from the state policy level to uh, leaders, advocates in the community, to parents. And yet we've had these gaps for decades. And so do you have a theory or a hypothesis or an acting model as to why those gaps are there? I think it's a combination of factors. You know, when you talk about the state of our schools, obviously achievement gap is the one one thing that we want to make sure we're acknowledging. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that we need to be clear on is that we're not giving up on it. I mean, you sure. don't have people who are saying, yeah, it's what it is. We're not apathetic to it. I mean, we're very, very concerned about it. We're very intentional about it. And, you know, what contributes to that? Yeah, what are a, some of a those variety things? Of things? I think um, when you look at the support that our, our students need and our families need, um, we, we often leave that out of the conversation. You know, absolutely, we have a responsibility to put the best teachers in the classroom in front of our students, the highest quality of instruction, and that's something we need to do better with in many cases, making sure they have the support to do their job. We have to have strong leaders in our buildings, um, ensure that they, again, are able to create that climate of welcoming atmosphere for our parents so that they feel like they can be an advocate for their child, um, also making sure that they're giving their, given the resources to hire you know teachers who look like their kids and who can reflect what those needs are in the in the classroom and then i think the third piece is we need that parental involvement and community support um and i think that's where we as a collective group uh, a community um need to to double down our efforts you know we can't we can't leave it to the schools to to fix some of the needs that are out there whether it's affordable housing livable wages um, health care mental health support um, Does this look the same in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, or are there differences? I think we share many, many similarities. I mean, the, the, the fine details might be a little bit different, but Superintendent Graff and I talk often um, and, and share what each is working on, and very much so. So what, again, this has been around for a long time, and you've articulated a few of the causes and a few of the things that folks are thinking are parts of the solution can you talk us through sort of you know if you were what are the boots on the ground what are the things that are sort of in place happening now that hopefully we'll see in a year two years three years that some of these gaps start to shrink well i, I will start since i've been here longer <laughs> yeah. what's been going on yeah. since july yeah. um, but you know part of what i did that first year is spent time kind of listening and trying to understand what we had in place as a district and what what the needs were from the parents perspective the staff students community and and obviously it came down to a few common themes one was they wanted high expectations for their kids 
and we confuse high expectations with you need to be doing this stuff, you know, just do it. I believe it's high expectations and high support. So you can't have one without the other. We, we've set the bar really high for our students and then we support them so they can actually see themselves achieving those yeah. Again, I, like, I, I hear these and I just want to try and put some meat on the bones of like, what does that actually mean in terms of uh, high support uh, and high standards? Like what would be different before versus now? Well, we just adopted a, a literacy curriculum. We have not had an adopted curriculum in Minneapolis for over 10 years. We haven't been teaching literacy in I 10 years? I didn't say that. <laughs> I said we adopted a literacy curriculum, so now what we have is we actually have materials that are in the hands of all of our pre-K through fifth grade teachers that are aligned to the standards, that have a scope and sequence, and I think when you operate with 36,000 plus students and you might get it here, you might not get it here, you leave that up to chance, and I'm not willing to do that. You okay. know, that, So I think that's the first thing, is having some real understanding of what um, those material needs are in the district. So that's part of uh, the foundation that we're trying to create. I, I know you've been three months, but uh, what, are the, what are the things that, I guess, you, kn you knew what you were signing up for when Absolutely. you signed in. So mm -hmm. what are the things that you've seen sort of that are in progress or the places that St. Paul is starting to try and do some of this work? Yeah, I think we're looking at and evaluating all the time uh, the methods that we use in engaging, welcoming our students making sure that our students not only come to school, but they make it and stay through the day in, in our learning. When we look at some of the behavior issues that we deal with, um, some of the past practices that we had uh, was to send students home, sometimes for the day, sometimes the rest of the week. Um, and that's not just here. I think that's, that's um, I can speak to other districts I've been in as well. And to look at what kind of support can we give students to succeed, uh, to learn from their mistakes. You know, we're, both districts are engaged in restorative practices. Uh, restorative justice work to different degrees and can you talk a little bit just about what that means yeah so it's a you know trying to be creating a culture where students are learning from the mistake they made where they're reclaiming uh, the relationship that they perhaps caused harm to another individual another group um, and this idea that um, it can be shared and solved in a place where people are seen as equals you, you have to take power out of, of behavior and power out of, of that whole uh, relationship and make sure that people are being heard on an equal basis. Many times the, uh, the transaction of school discipline is based on power. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is. I, I have the rules. This is my job. You're out of here. And that is, uh, uh, that is certainly led to, to different outcomes for kids, and especially when you disaggregate and look at students of color, those whose uh, behavior is impacting in different ways. And we know that because the data shows it. I, I, one of the macro pieces I wanted to ask about is Minnesota does have this reputation of being sort of this good education state for a long time. You know, people who were here, you know, a decade or two decades ago, think about the Minnesota miracle and uh, these pieces where we had this great. And now, and I've lived here now for about 10 years, and it seems like the conversation has really gotten replaced that piece with this conversation about these gaps and how bad that is and uh, trying to fix that. And so I'm wondering when you think about sort of what role the school plays in our understanding of who we are as a state, as a region, as a city, uh, what the relationship is between sort of citizens and the school. Uh, is, is it sort of in a, a bad place right now that uh, uh, and is it somewhere that we can start to, to turn it? Is it, are people hopeful that there's work that we can do here or is it just sort of those 
cynics all the time. So I'll say this, and I think it's outside of, of just the school data that we're typically looking at, but you know, we continually feel pressure or, or comments from higher ed saying your students aren't ready. The workforce, we don't have enough workers and they lack skills. Um, I'm of the belief that we have to stop having that conversation and begin working together uh, to truly create solutions for what that looks like. Um, there's, there's no reason why, why we can't offer meaningful and relevant courses in high school, students earning college credit, earning the kinds of skills that they're saying that they don't have. And it's, it's really time, and we've done it to some degree, but I think we can make a greater impact and, and do more of that. It's, are you talking about, uh, I don't know, uh, 3M coming in and uh, training uh, students to be engineers or, um, I don't know, uh, other things like that? Is that the idea? Or? You know, that's one example. We used yeah. to say all the time we're preparing students to um, for jobs that don't exist today. I believe we're... <laughs> that's I, hard. Wow. I, but, I believe, but I believe we're preparing students to create the jobs that don't exist today. I mean, that's literally how quickly technology and, yeah. and the world around us is moving. I think another piece that's out there with the business sector and the, the general public is um, the narrative around, you know, students aren't prepared. And, you know, you look at uh, some of the most successful kids coming out of high school and then going into college and then going into the workforce and the employers are saying, yeah, but they have all these skills that just don't align with what our values are in you know, um, that to me has been the forgotten conversation. We can we can have our kids being strong academically in the area of reading, writing, um, um, uh, math, you know, but if they don't know how to develop those 21st century skills, such as strong communication, collaboration, um, problem solving, critical thinking, you know, they're, they're not gonna be um, operating at the level that these companies are saying they need to be operating at. So our job is to make sure that they're getting exposure to those those skills on a regular basis. So uh, all students should be liberal arts majors or, <laughs> or theater students. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, okay. So uh, I, I want to talk about a couple other uh, numbers, uh, strategic pieces. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks here saw it. There was this big uh, piece in the Star Tribune a couple weeks ago about uh, open enrollment and about the declining numbers of students from different populations being in both the Minneapolis and St. Paul School Districts. So uh, basically what it, it's looking like over the last 10 years or so is um, there's a larger percentage of students uh, going to uh, charter schools and, and choosing outside of their traditional neighborhood schools. And so we're seeing dropping enrollment. And the populations of those look different, I think, in the two cities. Uh, in Minneapolis, it seems to be very largely uh, African-American and uh, Asian students. There's more white students who are choosing out of that in St. Paul. I'm wondering, A, what you think sort of leads to that. Like, why is that happening? And then is it something that you need to try and reverse or change? We're, we're definitely wrestling with it, you know, trying to understand exactly what, what role do we play in this, and is it a case of society where everyone says, you know, someplace other than here? You know, it couldn't be good enough for me to have my child attend the, the same kind of school that I attended, which was my neighborhood school. So we get into this dilemma around choice and, and options, and um, I think that's part of where we are as a society. You know, you don't go to a restaurant that has only one or two items that are specialties. You know, you go that has to a restaurant that has 50 different items, and half the time you're making choices that probably aren't healthy for you. But you can't... You, you can't Did you stop just call yourself. charter schools like barbecue chicken wings? Or... I didn't use that word. 
I'm just talking about choice in general. You know, we've got we've got options within our own district that I think we have to take a look at and say, you know, are we providing you know what is needed and and where's that where's that threshold of you know I'll go back to let's make the experience of the highest quality possible and then let's talk about whether or not there should be other options for kids. Do you think about, I mean, because there's also the very real issue of declining numbers of students means declining budgets and just changing potentially what schools are open and which ones aren't. So again, is it something that you think about in terms of this is a tide we need to change or just something we have to adapt and be different? I do. I think right-sizing our, our budget is, is part of our considerations and both of our predecessors and the boards, I think, did a great deal of that. We're to the point now where you know, we want to build our capacity and, you know, a couple counter narratives to that article one was brought up that, you know, instead of focusing on those students who are leaving, focus on the experience the students are having that are there now. And I, that was, that wasn't lost on me at all. We do get tied up in this idea of, you know, I've described it as three P's, proximity, personal choice, and perception. That's why people choose to go to other schools. But there's one that trumps that as well. It's competition. It's when you perceive perception or real numbers say that school A does better than school B, I want my kid at school A. Um, whatever the case might be in terms of if it's a, a class, a uh, extracurricular, a theater program, a band, um, a sports team, you know, those are the kinds of competitive decisions that the parents are making today. So should, I mean, again, it's, it's interesting. So schools should be sort of thinking about competing with each other in this way to, to be Beating like, yeah, uh, South High is gonna yeah. just destroy. I don't know North High. Uh. <laughs> I know that. Uh, I know I get lots of mail at home from schools that do compete. Yeah, yeah wait, just like Como Park and Central or something. <laughs> yeah, fine, that's fine. Como Park. I'm sorry, I keep throwing you under the bus. No. I don't mean to do that. It's just he's only been here three months. Oh, those are our schools. I didn't yeah. even know that. <laughs> Now he did it to himself. Uh, so, um, that, yeah. So, uh, see, it's the St. Paul thing, right? The other piece of this, though, I'm wondering is because uh, this is uh, this is a three-dimensional chess thing. Because while you're thinking about this question of grappling with uh, declining numbers of students, why students might be choosing one way or the other, you also have then declining budgets, potentially. You have less money to work with. And so uh, I actually got this question from somebody in the audience of, like, how how then do you think strategically about growing or making sort of forward-thinking decisions when you have less money, potentially, in the future? Okay, good. (laughs) Exactly what you said. How do we do it? For me, it's about um, creating this this level of stability and, and um, sustainability in our district, and so really, you know, peeling back the layers of what what is it that we're offering right now, and and are we satisfied with what we're offering and how that looks? And and most will tell you that when you work in education, you're focused on continuous improvement, so it's easy to say no, we don't need to do better. So we have to have these conversations with the board, with the public, on how do we build that up? And I envision after some time, some very challenging conversations, we're going to get to a place where we will start to be that much stronger. We'll start to have these foundational experiences for kids that will be consistent across the district, be, you know, 
what parents want and can grow accustomed to experiencing or expecting in our schools. And then we'll be able to make some adjustments and say, you know, we've got our systems in place, but we need to offer more around the advanced placement for our students, or we need to make sure that our supports go broader than just um, reading, writing, and math. We need to have the art, visual arts, you know, uh, music programs expanding uh, beyond the school day. And that's going to take a lot of um, support from the community as well. You know, our limitations and funds are always going to be there. You ask anyone, would you like more money? The chances are they're not going to say no. So we really need to be focused on how we're using those funds and then bring other supporters into the conversation about what resources they might have to, to add to this. Minneapolis is one of the, <clears throat> one of the strongest communities when you're talking about um, philanthropic, partnership, uh, businesses, and my job, I've always said, is to take those resources that are available here and align them so that our students, our kids can be the benefits of them, not only for today, but for many years to come. And that will pay it forward for, for a long time. Uh, I, I'm wondering the same question uh, to you, uh, but, but specifically then, uh, how, how does that relationship, I guess, change potentially as you know, maybe people's relationship to this school district is changing. Maybe they aren't thinking like, well, uh, you know, I went to this neighborhood school. My kids are going to go to it. Probably my grandkids are going to go to it. Actually, no, it could be that my kids go anywhere. And so maybe I have less of a less of a tie to that particular place or that particular system. Yeah, and St. Paul is a beautifully small place, compact, where there are generations of St. Paulites there. And their reference structure is exactly what they experience in school. And it can be really hard for us at times to look beyond that and honor it at the same time. It isn't my job to say you didn't experience that. So you have to honor that as you, um, as you create relationships in the community. And, you know, there are, you know, as Superintendent Graff said, the uh, people really care. I want St. Paul to be a great place to live, work, and learn. So, it, yes, our schools are obviously my, the most important part of it to me, but it has to be brokering relationships that are much more holistic than that, uh, knowing that uh, the people that work in St. Paul send their kids or their neighbors and go to our schools, uh, feel good about their community and, and want to support their schools. Uh, and I should say, again, as I said at the top, we open it up for you all to ask questions in the second half of the show. Um, we're getting there. So I, I am curious, I mean, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, what are you thinking about in terms of uh, some of this reorganization or re, uh, strategic visioning of what might change you know is it things like closing schools or uh is it that like all school uh is actually only three days a week now which uh if kids could vote um but you know I, what does it look like well for us i don't think there's anything that's not on the table i mean we're look, we're going to need to look at everything and again this is not a one-year fix um given our financial situation we're looking at two three years of really trying to to get us in a place where we feel like we can provide a consistent, um, high-quality education for our families and not being dependent upon that revenue that may or may not come. So we, we have to really identify that. Um, how do we go about doing it? We're doing a comprehensive district-wide assessment right now, looking at what our facilities are, um, the costs that we have associated with our facilities. We're looking at some of our educational programming offerings. Um, do we see kids in the elementary school then leading to a program in middle school and high school? What does our transportation look like? Um, do we have you know, a du duplication of resources um, being applied or is there redundancy? All of that is uh, not very exciting to talk about, 
but at the end of the day, someone's going to be impacted by it. And so we're just trying to um, give as broad brush picture of what that looks like um, so that when those conversations happen and we actually have to make a decision, people can, can see that a lot of thoughtfulness went into it and a lot of input and consideration. Is St. Paul having similar conversations or thinking about some of these pieces? We are. I mean, you know, Superintendent Graf's a year ahead, so he's my, he's my leader ahead. So um, we are. We have a strategic plan process that's starting. It'll be a, a next five-year plan. I, I know that shocks everybody when a new superintendent comes in, but, yes, we need to have a plan. And to me, the strategic plan is my way to communicate with the board and to the public, the community, uh, what it is that they're going to hold me accountable for. Um, so it's a very important plan to have in place um, to, you know, randomly address all the needs of the district will get you nowhere quick. We've got to have some focus. Uh, so it's a it's an exciting time as well. It's a chance to engage with the community in new and different ways. How, does that do you just throw it? Do you have like a, a town hall? Do you have do you do a survey? Do you uh, I, what what does this actually look like? Uh, Every day is a town hall. I mean, you, you can't, you've got to, you've got to, sorry, what? You, have to, you have to, you have to continually ask people what they think about your schools. But no, there will be focused efforts, focused groups, and uh, we'll have a third party come in and, and uh, strategically work with us to, to create the plan as well. Uh, okay, so last piece uh, before we turn it over to our cast, which is just you all have uh, only had about three years uh, or three years, three months together, and you just said, you know, a leader and whatnot. I'm wondering what is the relationship like between the two of you? You know, you have these two large school districts. They share a lot of things. They share potentially students over the course of a lifetime. Uh, is it that you're just collaborating and everything's great? You bake each other muffins? Or is there that competition element we were talking about before? Like, Oh yeah, I got six of your students last month. Like they're, yeah, they came across the river. Yeah. Uh, so we we tweet or or no, we text. We text. He, he tweets more than I do. He's got like thousands. I think I have a few. But um, we text. I mean, he texted me the other day. He's like, "Hey, I'm at a great football game. We're losing to." Washburn, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, good. Maybe we can go to a game in the future. Um, you know, so yeah. stuff like that. Um, it's like it's like early dating. It's very it's yeah. Like... When I when I arrived in Minneapolis, uh, Joe was in another district, and he was gracious enough to welcome me to the the state. And I think ever since then we've been having conversations. And when um, I heard he was in the running for the position at St. Paul, I was just ecstatic for him, and I thought this would be a great great opportunity not only for him as he moves into a, a bigger leadership position in the state but for the city of minneapolis uh, because of the partnership we could have mm -hmm. with st paul and st paul uh, as a district as well so i think it's been uh, nothing but love you know nothing but <laughs> positive things and, and your response uh <laughs> my so my team reminds me all the time that we are linked in ways that many other districts aren't so what happens to us impacts us maybe a media story it's important that we share information just to keep each other in the loop on that. So it's been helpful in both ways um, in, in terms of things like that. The other thing I'll say is that uh, Superintendent Graf has led a huge system. Um, so he's, uh, he has some experiences that, uh, that are helpful to me and the perspective that we share is we belong to several groups, state regional groups as well. Um, and you know I think his viewpoints are very much respected and um, are, are heard loud and clear. On that uh, loving note, uh, can we do a tremendous round of applause? Uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will come towards you in a non-threatening manner with the microphone. 
Um, over here, over here, there's a question. Hello. I'm a parent of a 21-year-old who's done with public school right now. Um, but I was wondering about the presence of police in the schools and the absence of counselors in the schools, which is one reason that my kid went to a small charter school, because I have an activist kid of color who I honestly was afraid would end up in the pipeline to prison that we hear so much about. Great question. Yeah, so St. Paul Public Schools, we, uh, I came into a, a plan to reduce the number of officers. There were nine in the district. There are seven. Um, I think that uh, what we have to make sure that we do is keep that line of communication open. The relationship we have with our police department is a partnership, meaning that it, um, there's a contract that guides it, but we have to come together continually to talk about is it working, is it meeting the objectives that we have. And uh, for us, there's been some great data showing that uh, the number of arrests have been reduced. There's also been great clarity around whether or not police are involved in school policy work or the work of the police department. And I think the times that I've been involved that have been, um, that have been different have been when those lines are blurred. And uh, so we, we clearly have to continue to look at it very much for our district. Um, the last thing that any of us want to do in our community is see our students in our schools uh, receive a, a police consequence. At the same time, we also have some very violent situations that are happening in our communities, and our schools are part of our community. Uh, so I feel as though we owe it to our community to uh, do whatever we can uh, to put support in place to make sure that our schools are safe. And just to get to the other piece of her question, uh, the, the piece about more counselors in, in schools and whatnot, and, and the balance between those two things, is that, is that part of the same conversation? It, uh, and how do you balance that? It is. So if you look at social workers, counselors, uh, uh, many different specialists, mental health experts. I mean, it, it really is a wraparound network. Um, you know, counselors are, are one piece of it, but I, I think that if I went into every one of our 68 schools today, each of them would say, we, we need more. How do we get more? That's a million-dollar question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with understanding what those needs are, and the more we can communicate what the needs are, people will begin to see the, the value and benefit of having people like counselors, social workers. The district I came from, we didn't have social workers. That was not a, a title I was familiar with. Um, but counselors were a big part of uh, programming. And unfortunately, we didn't have enough counselors available so that every school could have their own. We had partnerships of counselors. And I think if we're not going to be able to have that provided for our students, then we've got to have support outside of those uh, um, classrooms and outside of the school setting because there are needs, uh, absolute needs. And I heard the story um, anecdotally earlier this year where we had students lined up to see a counselor. And fortunately, they had a counselor there. But, you know, every student's bringing forward, um, you know, what their personal situation is, and our teachers are doing the best they can to support those needs. But sometimes it needs to be very, um, very specific to, to something that um, requires a licensed person to, to help assist with. Okay, uh, other hands, and I am willing to come up there. I will. Okay, I'm going to go all the way up there. Uh, hello. Hi, um, I'm an overeducated liberal professional <laughs> and feel like I am part of the problem and people like me are part of the problem because we want our kids 
to also become overeducated liberal <laughs> professionals, doctors, attorneys, software engineers, right. um, master's degrees, PhDs, and we look at schools in that limelight, and, and when we look at an educational gap or test score gap, we're looking at these our kids that are going to college for those types of areas, where in actuality we need to be focusing on more important areas that uh, green energy. For green energy, we need all kinds of technical jobs. We need, so, we need somebody that can come in and install a 99% efficient furnace in your house. Somebody that can do the landscaping to minimize the water that's running off into the rivers. Somebody that can do interior design and show you that you only need a 1,500 square foot home to meet your needs. It doesn't have to be 5,000 square feet. And that type of job doesn't need somebody that goes beyond high school or um, uh, associate's degree. Yeah. So do you, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> question mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The question mark is, I feel I am the problem. Prove me right or wrong, your choice. <laughs> I will say that um, part of what I, I'm wanting to build in our schools is the opportunity for students to see themselves and, and the opportunity gap. We talk about achievement gap. Some people call it an opportunity gap. So making sure we give students access to those experiences, talking about watershed, talking about solar energy, talking about... Um, you know, whatever the career might be currently and in how it evolves to something else. And what we'll find more often than not with students is there'll be a spark. There'll be a passion that they pick up on. And that's what we need to do is we need to nurture and engage that passion so they can see that it's more than just a, a, a theme or something they're learning in their classroom. It's the excitement around um, learning itself and how they can pursue whatever it is that that passion becomes. How is that for an answer to your question? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I connected with what you were asking, but I think that's that's what I see is that we need to make sure we're providing opportunities for students so that they can begin to see themselves as uh, people who have control over what their future is, as opposed to fitting them into a box and saying that you know X Y equals Z. You know, you have to you have to do this to get to this space. Hi, so you were mentioning how it isn't just up to the schools to create a, like a student to support that student. You're talking about how it is a part of communities and families. And I was wondering what are the measures that you take when those students currently don't have those communities or families? And it's all very hypothetical and a great idea, but I mean, we're never going to have every student who has that supportive family and that supportive community. So is it like, are you working with communities or with the families or with students or, like, specific schools or kind of what do you do to fill that gap? It's, it's a combination of things. I think at first is an acknowledgement of looking at the, the student and seeing where they have assets. I think too often we focus on the deficiencies, and that becomes the narrative. So I want to make sure that we're starting with all the assets and the positive things that students are doing, whether it's the, the academic success that they're having or the resiliency that they're having or the... Um, the creativity. So I think looking at all of those different pieces that make up uh, our, our students and then trying to identify, you know, within our 
our school population? Are there areas that we can emphasize within the school um, as areas of need? You know, if we know that our students are not getting the, the mental health support, then maybe there's a partnership with a nearby uh, faith-based organization or a community center where we can start to look at the after-school activities and those enrich enrichment programs and, and focus on that. Um, you know, so I think it depends on uh, the school itself, and those schools vary. Having more than 70 in Minneapolis, you know, you have wide ranges of supports that are being needed. One of the things, and just to build on this, I'm really curious, is this different? Are we asking something different of schools now than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago, where it is thinking not just about a student being in a classroom from 8 to 3, but, like, what? How, where are they coming from? What are they doing? How... How is the social support network in their neighborhood or their family? Yeah, I'm glad you elaborated on that, Tane, because it's not just the seat time anymore. Uh, the, the differences are, are stark. So one example is, uh, and I know Minneapolis participated as well, the Green Card Voices Project. Well, we have immigrant young people who uh, come to our school districts who have been here, some for just a year, uh, and they have successfully published their autobiography, sharing their story of, of who they are, uh, their family, their background, what they want in an education and a life. And, wow. and to see and experience that and be in the place of students when they're sharing that story. And these were what? High school? These are high school high What school the hell students. am I doing with my life? Jeez. Well, like. <laughs> so it, 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 what, what I'm trying to illustrate is that uh, you know, my good friend Joe is here, and Joe and I know someone who talks a lot about purpose. Um, and for us to help students define their purpose, uh, you won't find a grade or a, or a data point that says my purpose, but if you can have a student leave your school district and they understand what their purpose is, um, you, you, we have to really look carefully at that as well and supporting them in that way. Okay, I have two very eager hands over here. So I'll do this one and I promise I'll come over uh, You know, both cities are electing mayors right now. And it's always struck me as kind of odd the way the, the election of the city council and mayor doesn't seem to have anything to do with educational policy. Are we well served by having other forms of politics and education separated the way they are? Does it make any difference who the mayor is? I don't mean who do you want, but does it really make any difference what well, the city is? follow up, who do you want? Yeah. Uh. Well, having served in a large urban district, I can tell you it does matter who the mayor is when it, when it comes to education. I've, I've worked collaboratively with mayors, and I've worked um, um, to try and influence uh, mayors and what they think of, of public education. So it, it absolutely does matter. Uh, we need critical supporters in those positions. Um, it's too easy to, to default to, you know, being a, um, an opponent, you know, as opposed to a supporter. You heard me say earlier, live, work, and learn, and that, that's a collaborative goal. That's a shared goal. That can't be just done with one faction of a community as well. So it is important to, to network and build capacity within uh, those governmental entities. And if you want to talk about what a thriving economy looks like in a city, um, look to public education to be a, a big part of that piece. You know, um, there's a proposal out there now about this large organization possibly finding a new home. And, and I would say that um, if, if we're not talking about the value of public education in our cities, um, they're probably not going to have a lot of interest in, in being grounded here. You're talking about pets.com. Uh, it's, it's a jungle out there. Hi. Uh, I am a teacher, and I work with struggling learners. I, 
I'd been out of the teaching profession for 20 years, and when I came back in, the classrooms were the same as they'd been 20 years. Now I've been another 15 years. But my question is, it's twofold. One, how are we going to change the model of, of teaching? Because it's still kids sitting, and they might get to turn and talk for three minutes, but it's still kids just sitting and basically being told what to think and what to learn and how to spit it back. And it's often not anything related to their lives. So I have a two-fold question with that. Has there been any discussion about project-based learning? What you just said about the green card, that's project-based learning. That's real life, real tools, real world. Um, and in, the only way to do that is to have smaller class sizes. So we go back to regurgitate because we have 35 kids in a classroom. So how do we get smaller classes? And is there a conversation about project-based learning and really not having fun stories you know, here and there, but in, our, in every classroom. I would say that the, the conversation around project-based based learning has been around for a long time, and I think one of the cautions I would put out there is attaching to something like project-based learning as opposed to really getting at the core. What we're trying to do is we're trying to provide access to um, a student's passion, you know, whatever that is. And, and most often it's not by them just sitting and hearing factual information or you know dates and statistics and things like that. It's really about um, the experiential learning and them being engaged in doing something, whether it's a community service project or it's actually the creation or an invention of an experiment, things like that. So that's where I would say we need to move toward is, is finding ways to create environments for our students to see themselves as learners and be passionate about things. And sometimes it does look differently for the type of student, um, you know, than what teachers are doing. And other times it's uh, just uh, not known by the student what their passion is. So project-based learning has been around a long time. We have examples of it in many of our schools. Um, but I would say rather than saying we're going to implement this, I would go back to what is that experience going to be for the student? And ultimately, I want them to walk out of that classroom feeling like they have a, a purpose, a passion around um, learning itself. To put a finer point on that quickly, uh, do you have the room and the capacity that you need to experiment in these ways in, in the systems that you run? So do you have opportunities to try the new things that aren't, you know, uh, students trying things and regurgitating them on a scale where you can actually see if they work broad-based more than, as she was saying, sort of anecdote to anecdote? So we've done some work around trying to create um, innovation in our classrooms and in our schools, and I think, the, the, uh, again, the challenge is um, making sure that what we're doing is there's some evidence base behind it, you know, not so much research, but there's evidence behind it, and then how can we scale that up? And we've not been able to successfully scale that up. We look at some of our schools that are experiencing success and how do we how do we make that uh, applicable to all well it will come back to three three pieces in many cases it'll come back to the relationship and the interaction of uh, the teacher with the students it'll come back to the leadership that you have and creating a climate and culture within your building and then also the the parental involvement and i don't mean that from a standpoint of i'm a helicopter parent and i'm really you know making sure that everything's going on but how does a parent feel welcomed in the school? How do they feel like they can offer support or provide support? 
Those are the three consistent pieces that you'll find in successful experiences um, for, for students. How do we make that everywhere and not leave it to chance? I think we uh, continue to look at um, putting some of those systems in place that, that support that. And we've tried to, I think, a, a core you know, a core framework for instruction, for learning, for leadership is, is really important. And within that, we've tried to offer choices all throughout the district that are, you know, whether it's language immersion, Montessori. You know, so we have many different um, opportunities for students within the district, but it all has to fall within that framework. There has to be some core expectations uh, and capacity building that's, that's happening at every one of those schools for every student as well. Okay, I got one last question. Do you uh, simply equip and incentivize your educators to record their lectures so the kids can review them at home and stand less often in the front of the classroom? So you're talking about like a flipped classroom where uh, a lot of my instruction is done um, through a recorded approach and then the kids go home and learn it and then they come in and apply it in the classroom? Wait, uh, I don't know if I totally followed that. Can you talk us through a flipped classroom? Not just like I'm flip about this class, but like. So the model is that you spend the majority of your time in class working on uh, experiencing things. And um, so I would, I would record lessons for students to absorb, to engage with outside of the school. I mean, they get some of it in the, the class time, but then outside of it, they would spend time hearing my 20 minutes about uh, what the standards are and what you need to learn and understand. And then they come back to school the next day and they would actually spend time working on it. You would see the guided practice. The majority of your instruction would be around supporting the students as they learn that. It's a, it's a flipped model. So the time is not spent in the traditional, I'm here to deliver information to you. You get it condensed to what the key pieces of information are for kids and then they get that outside of school, and then they come back in and work on it, and you can actually have a lot more collaboration, uh, cooperation. You've got differentiation for where students are as learners. The teacher can provide support. Um, I've, I've experienced that in my profession um, over the years, and it takes a great deal of coordination. You also have to have access to those, um, that technology outside of school, and, and frankly, not a lot of our structures are set up to where um, people have those environments at home to where it's conducive to kids getting that information, whether it's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It reinforces uh, learning and what's going on. And, and so we have elements of that from time to time. You'll see that in new newsletters that will come out. Um, they covered, we covered this during the week. Ask your child about this at home, and students will then, again have more than just a, a fact that they're sharing. They'll give a, um, you know, a deeper understanding. They'll be able to apply that, that learning. Were you going to jump in? I'd say quickly, you know, the utilization of a learning management system has gotten us closer to that, where it is more common than it is the, the pocket of one or two people doing it. To the, the video and the flip lesson through that, probably not to the degree that it could be, uh, but the technology is definitely there, and being a one-to-one -one district with devices uh, there really is no excuse. It's just the time and the support to, to do it well. They are not. Okay, so the last piece, maybe this is actually a good transition there, which is the last piece, and I like asking a lot of guests this, is well, uh, what do we do? Uh, so people leave here and they're like, oh, yeah, this is really, I all of a sudden now I realize schools are important. Uh, <laughs> 
and I want to I want to be a better advocate or a better uh, ally or I want to be connected with this. I want to have all of the lectures recorded and so that I can review them and edit them for the students. How what do we do? What is what is something somebody can walk out of here and do? Yeah, I'd say the main thing is if you have complaints, contact Ed Graff. And if you have donations, <laughs> donations to the St. Paul schools, uh, send that to 360 Colborne. Uh, no, in, in all seriousness, uh, caring, staying engaged, uh, uh, you know, there are so many ways to be involved in, in your public schools, uh, no matter where you live. And, and again, it goes back to something I said earlier, that, um, that the opposite of, of caring is apathy. The opposite of, of being involved is apathy. We need people to be involved, uh, whether it's school board, whether it's task forces, whether it's referendum that are important, they're lifelines. Uh, for us to continue to do great work in our communities that matters uh, to the community. So I, I thank you for being here tonight and, and listening to us. So I will say I want to give you my cell number here. Oh, my um, God. It starts with J-O-E. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I need critical, critical supporters, and I'll define it, um, I guess, really quickly. A critical supporter is someone who attends a, an event like this, and as Dr. Gothard mentions, you know, if you've got someone who you feel is in the position to address a concern, go to that person directly. Classroom teacher, building principal, you know, superintendent's fine, but usually you start where the issue is um, easily, most easily resolved. And then I would say the rule of three, which is if you hear something that is positive or you feel like is something you can support, find three people and share that information with them too often we start with i went to this event and let me tell you all the negative things that happened and you're not addressing it to the people who can actually make a difference um, we as a society need to change that change that narrative and talk about the positive things that are happening in our schools or what you're hearing and promoting those things it fills up the space uh, very quickly for all those professional cynics and it, it actually gives you some direction as to what you can do to build on um, what you heard. And the last thing I'll say is in Minneapolis Public Schools, the month of October, we're identifying as Visit Our Schools Month. And so I encourage you, if you've not stepped foot in a, a school for a number of years, um, not judging anyone in the room, but just just um, check out your neighborhood school, um, whether it's you know just down the block from you. Set up a, a visit with the principal, give you a tour of what's going on, and you can learn a, a lot about what's going on in the school from just that brief experience, uh, talking to the, the principal, um, finding out what the community is doing. So visit our schools in the month of October, and I think learn firsthand what's going on and see some of the, the strong, positive things that are being provided for our kids every day. And then, please, again, a big round of applause for Ed Graff, Joe Gothard. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.